seen a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. But how, how can you judge on video nasty? Oh, you've seen one. I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film. Genesis podcast. My name's Christopher Brown. There are some films that came out of uh, America in the 70s that feel oddly artistic, t- uh, of their time rather than timeless, and almost compelling just because they seem so, so odd and strange and otherworldly. Not surreal as such. The Headless Eyes from, from 1971 filmed in New York and written and directed by Kent Bateman. It's not a movie that has a, a feeling of, um, of surrealism about it, despite its unusual tone and storyline. Instead, what it kind of feels like is, is gritty and dark and grim, but also um, strange and off-kilter. Despite its rather... <laughs> rubbishy <laughs> reviews online, I'd probably recommend that you give it a go. Particularly if you like things that are um, exploitation films, particularly like that, you know, evoke the uh, the grizzleness of a 42nd Street. He called himself a collector. But what he collected meant someone had to die. A maniac is loose. Obsessed by an uncontrollable urge to kill. He's watching you. When you see him, it will already be too late. Run and he will catch you. Hide and he will find you. When you give him the eye, he was very pretty. You're already dead. The headless eye. So the story's about an artist named uh, Arthur, paid by uh, Bo Brunden, who we before we even see the name of the film on the on the title screen, sneaks into a woman's bedroom and tries to steal money off her to help pay his rent. Now thinking that she's about well attacking him anyway, although apparently she it's pretty clear that he, he, her reasoning is that she wants, he's going to rape her rather than, uh, he, she thinks he's going to rape her rather than, uh, attack, you know, uh, just steal her. She, uh, gets a spoon from the bedside table and pushes one of his eyes out. He screams and has to try and escape and falls off a, a fire escape, landing onto the ground. Um, we fast forward. And we find uh, Arthur trying to understand um, 
and make sense of the, the violence that's uh, happened to him and the world around him. Arthur does this in a quite a grim way, to be fair, and becomes a serial killer and uses his victim's eyes in his art. See, Arthur's a bit of a, bit of a, an avant-garde artist. And the film, to a point, pokes fun at the stray, you know, the, the, the kind of bohemian idea of, um, people who, who open up their, you know, their art or their art galleries and, uh, kind of sell mad tat, <laughs> I suppose. Here, Arthur uses the eyes in things like, um, in hanging displays with the, with the eyeballs kind of jewel to announce and he's completely obsessed with them. And so we see numerous shots of him kind of scooping eyes out of attacked women and, uh, holding them, cosping them hands and muttering to himself. The film occasionally darts between um, his own mental internal dialogue m- monologue, kind of wondering why people women are interested in him and talking to him and that kind of thing because obviously you know, he has an eye patch and he sees himself as being a, a freak um, and also um, the world around him kind of shaping and shifting um, as uh, people fairly uncaringly um, accept this bloke and kind of just ignore him to be fair. The film was created by uh, well as we said written by uh, and directed by Kent Bateman but uh, apparently uh, it is suggested that um, the producer uh, Ron Sullivan who's credited as uh, Henry Pratchett in this film um, has a equal kind of um, say in terms of, um, of what was going on Pratchett um, made uh, his his money and uh, his success from creating kind of quite quite graphic, sleazy sex and, and, and sadism kind of films, such as uh, in the sixties, Lust Weekend, and Scare Their Pants Off. Uh, but probably as we get into the seventies and eighties, better known for films like The Devil in Miss Jones Part Two. As you say, the film was uh, kind of Bateman's first foray into directing. He, he does some more stuff on and off, but kind of more becomes a bit of a producer. And, um, IMDb trivia fans will probably be aware that he's the father of the actors, Jason Bateman, who is probably best known for, um, Arrested Development, amongst other things. And, uh, Justine Bateman as well, who is also known for films like, sheet shows like, uh, Family Ties and Desperate Housewives. So it's perhaps not surprising, therefore, that there are these rumours that this, um, you know, a more prolific uh, filmmaker like Sullivan kind of was involved in the creation of the film. Uh, and indeed, it does have some kind of feel, you know, has that kind of, it has a sleazy, grimy feel to it. It feels very much of if its place in New York. That's not that surprising. I mean a lot of, you know, you look at a lot of films that are created in this way at that time in New York, they do kind of have this a similar kind of feel, particularly when you put it through the lens of what you're probably seeing it in, which might be a a, a pan and scan four by three version of the film that's been uh you know maybe a video rip as which was what I watched um this time rather than maybe something a bit more pristine. 
But I don't think, personally, it's hard to say. I mean, who knows? No one's really spoken about the film, perhaps unsurprisingly. Sullivan's dead and Bateman doesn't speak about the movie. But uh, And that's probably not, not, not that surprising. Perhaps it is a, a sleazy grindhouse film after all. But um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be getting down the kind of road of, um, well, Poltergeist, you know, the old uh, did Hobie Hooper film this? <laughs> or was it... Or was it Spielberg? Or was there somewhere in the middle in terms of how the film was made? I think what is clear, clear when you watch it is that uh, a that everyone's having a proper go. They're really they're really into it and have you know really want to make a good film. But also that the movie itself is uh, clearly being ad libbed in places. Um, there's a very loose structure to the way it's been put together beyond its initial kind of setup and how the characters interact with each other. Uh, which kind of gives it a more naturalistic feeling. And there's um, some moments where characters are quite big and grand, and there's some moments where it's very, very, very real and, and, and small performances. And that's partly obviously because of the fact that the, the characters and the, the actors are, you know, are, are of various levels and various backgrounds. But also because it, how it feels like it's being made, where you know, they're throwing the camera up, let's get this film going, let's just, you know, shoot some film and see how people feel. I think the film is particularly good when it's on the streets of New York in quite quite shitty areas of town and they're using who are clearly real people and asking them to act in the film. So you have old ladies kind of just being like full on and like kind of laughing at the camera manically and you don't know whether they're acting or just feeling it's hilarious or maybe there's something else at play with the character, you know. Or, you know, the camera spins to somebody on the street and it's designed like news footage and someone's just ad-libbing some feeling about how they knew that person who lived in the area and they're dead now. All of it kind of, A, fills the time for the the, the, the length of the film for, for the filmmakers, but also kind of adds a very different feel to it. I think um, when you think about a movie like this and how all the different strands intersect together, it kind of creates of an unusual kind of heady deep kind of movie experience which you don't normally get from um something that's supposed to be a little slicker a little more organized or a film where they're kind of like right this is the exact scene we need we've got to film it in two takes because that's the amount of, of of footage film we've got if you kind of let it play out and just have people reacting and kind of give a more naturalistic vibe it, it kind of creates something different. Now, that's not to say The Headless Eyes is something that, you know, there's a reason why it doesn't get the best reviews in the world. Um, it's a bit meandering. It's its structurelessness um, does not benefit it. And the film kind of just ends when I, I'm assuming they just run out of money and have enough footage to make it a full thing. And that kind of um, makes it an incredibly unsatisfying ending um as it kind of you know none of the none of the, the the strands that are kind of thrown up and kind of then ignored like random counters with, with different characters etc really kind of come to any real fruition and instead we focus on this character this arthur malcolm artist character just kind of falling apart so the film was distributed by JER pictures which is an independent company based in times square who were focusing on putting films out on 42nd Street. So it was paired, the double feature with the ghastly ones, which we've already spoken about, that Andy Milligan 
Um, film which also became a, a video nasty uh, and opened at, at, in New York in 1971, in October 27th. It got an X rating because it's violence, but it was shown in the kind of places where that doesn't matter. So the film was uh, reasonably well received and uh, to a point in the sense that people went to see it. Um, and that's possibly not that surprising. Um, you know, it does deliver on what you'd expect that a film like this to deliver, which is gore, extreme violence, and uh, and it, it did it with a, a relative degree of aplomb. Um, if you were, if if my descriptions haven't really helped, I think we've spoken about you know uh, certainly in the past on uh, on other podcast, um, Last House on Dead End Street, which um, was mentioned as Fun House. Um, when we covered Fun House, because there's a mix up between those those films. When we, if you go back right in the midst of time to Video Nasty season one, uh, I, I mentioned that this film has a similar kind of vibe to it. A lot of actors who aren't really actors, um, a lot of strangeness, kind of a headiness. The violence feels a, a mixture of um, it's kind of shot like like kind of sexualized, but isn't sexualized. It's uh, you know it looks like he's attacking them. In a, in a sexual way, but he's just really going to take their eyes out. It all kind of blends together. I think it hugely succeeds as a film if you consider it in a late night slot. You know, like put this fucker on at like 11 o'clock at night and you're probably going to get the best you're going to get out of it. Anyway, the film kind of then just effectively got unceremoniously dumped put on a shelf you know it fulfilled its purpose that it paid its budget back before getting released in 1982 on sapphire vhs uh and was subsequently you know it was preset it was subsequently seized but um wasn't um prosecuted as we've discovered already with section uh section three films it was then uh, got a, a VHS release uh, from uh, Wizard Video in uh, in US uh, in the eighties. A limited release was released again as a DVD in twenty thirteen. It had a uh, a Blu Ray release from Code Red in uh, twenty sixteen. And if you're in the UK and you're curious to watch it, the easiest way by far is to go is get uh, get a Full Moon subscription. Uh, and watch it there. So Full Moon Pictures, you know, they've got all the um, Puppet Master films and all that kind of stuff. They've also got a bank of grindhouse uh, type films from 70s and 80s from their back catalogue that they've put up there as well. That version is a, a VHS rip to the point that it actually has a, a you know, a, an advert at the end of the video for the film you've just watched and another movie. Um, so, you know, not a great advert for Full Moon's um, back catalogue online or the free 99 they want or whatever it is for, for to, to subscribe. But you can always get a free seven days and give it a look if you want. Um, yeah, so that's the, the the nature of these things, I think, these days in terms of how these uh, how these things are, are currently finding the way online. And in fairness, it's good that it has. For me... I'd rather watch this kind of slightly avant-garde, just a little bit off-kilter exploitation film than a lot of the other stuff that's on the list. Um, it just feels like it's desperately trying to do something. I might not think that something's particularly what I want to watch or what's particularly brilliant, but it, it does do it in a, in a certain uh, in a certain way. 
I know who did it. I know who did it. I who did it, old lady? I know who did it. I know who did it, old lady. Anyway, if you want to get hold of me, please do. My email address is videonassispodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at orange underscore monkey, or uh, you can go to the website slashhorrorpodcast.com or videonassispodcast.com and uh, leave a message on any of those, and I will get back to you. Um, you know what? I've just been talking about uh, Fun House, haven't I? And uh, Last House on Dead End Street. And uh, on eBay, one of the... It's, they come up so rarely, it's probably not that surprising, but Fun House, the UK tape, which uh, never got a proper release, so there must be only be a handful of them in the world, uh, and his mouldy got uh, got sold for £1,950 uh, this week, which is uh, the most I think I've ever seen for a Video Nasty or something involved with a Video Nasty scare to, to get... Um, you know, heady, heady amounts. I mean, you think you're, uh, you think you're 400 quids for, uh, Beast and Heath seem, seem a bit, a uh, bit, a bit tasty, but the fag paper under, uh, 2k for, uh, a, 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 for a degraded tape, which obviously doesn't have a cover or anything like that. It's just a blank tape with front house printed on it. I mean, fair fucks. Um, that is a, a crazy, exciting world that we live in. Anyway, um, I say thank you very much for listening. Uh, next week we're going to do Cannibal, and for those that are keeping up and are, are, are bewildered by the variety of Cannibal films that uh, have, have popped up now, this is the 1976 77 uh, Diodato uh, film, which was originally going to be like um, kind of semi sequel to uh, Man from Deep River. Probably is better known as Ultimo Mondo Cannibal, uh, or Jungle Holocaust, or The Last Survivor, or Last Cannibal World. I think it was released in the UK as that as well. Um, but on the on the old um, videotape from Section Three, it was just known as Cannibal. So that's what we'll call it, at least on the uh, on the on the podcast name before we <laughs> invariably start calling it. I probably Ultimo Mondo Cannibal, if I'm being honest, because I mean, you know, that's the that's the name of the fucker. Anyway. <clears throat> Until next time, take care, and I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye. I have never seen a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. How, how can you judge on a video nasty? Oh, have you never seen one? I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film.